The Iran nuclear deal stands today as one of the most controversial foreign policy initiatives undertaken by a U.S. president in recent memory. Opposed by a bipartisan majority in Congress, President Barack Obama waged a massive PR and government relations campaign to keep the deal moving forward, eventually winning over enough Senate Democrats to block legislation to stop the deal. The fight was bitter, the rhetoric was harsh, and the results were mixed. Sanctions were lifted on Iran, only to be reimposed a few years later when the opposing party took control of government. Ten years ago, the U.S. Senate passed sanctions on Iran's central bank, 100 to nothing, over the objections of the Obama administration. Today, however, bipartisanship is hard to come by, with progressives pressing President Biden to lift sanctions on Iran and rejoin the nuclear deal, while conservatives warn they'll reimpose sanctions and leave the deal no matter what. Today, we're joined by the person credited with designing the political and messaging strategy that allowed the Iran deal to move forward and that broke the decades-long bipartisan consensus on Iran. Coming up, we'll go deep on the issues with Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications and Speech Writing. Don't push pause. You're listening to Limited Liability Podcast. Today, we are fortunate to have with us one of the central figures in the formulation and execution of foreign policy in the Obama administration. Ben Rhodes served as a speechwriter and then deputy national security advisor for strategic communications for President Barack Obama. He's an author and a commentator in a variety of news outlets and serves as a member of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council. Ben, welcome to the podcast. We have lots to discuss. I know Rich will have a lot of substantive questions on your contrasting worldviews, the JCPOA and the recent conflict. But first, you have a new book out, uh, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. And for me, the most interesting part right off the bat was where you talk about being surveilled by private Israeli intelligence firm. <laughs> uh, you know, were you surprised that your opponents went to those lengths? And ha- has this gone too far? Yeah, you know, I, I as I describe in the book, like I was surprised at how unsurprising it was when I learned about it. Um, you know, in that, like, our, look, our politics has just gotten uglier um, uh, over the years and, and more personal and kind of traditional boundaries of kind of respecting certain space or norms had kind of fallen away. And, and what was interesting to me about that experience, which I relay in the book, is like, you know, I learned about this in the press, right? So like wake up one day and someone sends me a link to an article in The Guardian that's like, you know, uh, Black Cube has been hired <laughs> to, to surveil you. And um, and then I, you know, dig up dirt on you somehow. And I got um, a call then from Ronan Farrow, you know, who's become something of a celebrity journalist because he had actually interacted with Black Cube because um, they had surveilled some of Harvey Weinstein's accusers. And Ronan obviously had broken that story. And he had me go back through my email and he kind of cued me up. Hey, if you get any emails with these kinds of characteristics and led me to an email in which somebody had reached out to my wife saying they were a film producer for Shell Productions, which is a pretty ironic name. And they wanted to talk to her about the personal lives of people involved in negotiations with the country to prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon and negotiations with a country that has been under embargo uh, for decades. Uh, it didn't say Iran and Cuba. It's just that's how they characterized it. 
and what happens in people's lives when when those things are going on. Uh, so it wasn't that that subtle. It wasn't necessarily the best tradecraft. Um, but actually, the point that that I made in the book that was interesting when I reflected on this incident is, you know, given how overt that email was, and, and given how this thing got out, you know, I actually part of me kind of thought that that the whole point was actually not to to find some information about me. It was it was actually for it to get out, right? That that there's an intimidation factor um, that comes from. And I have no idea who paid for this. I don't know what the point of origin of it was. There's lots of different competing theories. Um, but the, the, the simple fact is, I, you know, I actually think that it was more about, you know, making people think twice about, um, you know, uh, getting involved in these debates. And um, it was kind of a, a demoralizing aspect to it. Um, so so that, that to me was the kind of discovery I had when I thought about it, that like, Huh, maybe this was actually that's what this is kind of about. Is it is it you in the same way that there's kind of a brute force to online debates and a trolling that takes place, this might have been a more sophisticated form of of, of trolling in a way. I, I know I'm not a stranger to some of that. There's obviously left wing websites and oppo firms that have that have come after many of us uh, in the past. And you can Google and see our profiles online. I'm sure you have have the same on your end. I, I do wonder, you talk about the ugly rhetoric and the personalization of this you know to what extent when you reflect back to 2015 the rhetoric that was used out of the white house uh, and with allies of the white house and in, in trying to sell the iran deal you know we had these phrases like israel firster in the pocket of the israel lobby putting israel's interest over america's I, i'll never forget the huffington post with the 16 saboteurs and the democratic senators who were proposing sanctions legislation when you reflect on that, I mean, that seemed to really personalize in a very ugly way the politics of the Iran deal fight. Do you do you agree with that? Well, look, I, first of all, like that, a lot. Uh, we never said that <laughs> Israel first was out of the White House, right? So, um, one of the th- the strange experiences that I had, Rich, is I was assigned a lot more power than I than I had, uh, you know, by, by some of our critics, so that I was somehow completely masterminding and shaping everything that everybody said in this debate. No, when I look back on that, most of the, like, if you look at the huge volume of of material produced by the White House in defense of the Iran deal, it was usually very specific. We made a concerted effort. We're going to get nuclear experts. We're going to get scientists. We're going to have Ernie Moniz out in this thing. We're going to try to make this airtight, fact-based case for, for our argument. I think the one argument that was more contested, right, which I, which I, you know, I, I, because I, we never said Israel firsters are in the pocket of you. You never heard that language emanating from the White House, and nor were we like encouraging people to do that. The argument that we made that that touched a nerve with some people was that there was a basically a choice between this kind of deal, Iran getting a nuclear weapon, or another war, um, and a kind of a deal versus war framing that people found offensive uh, because. You know, people said, well, you're saying we want to go to war. And and look, I, I think I still stand by those arguments in the sense of we, it, we're, what we're saying is there's three ways to solve this problem. You either are going to have some diplomatic agreement um, that restricts and restrains and rolls back the Iranian nuclear program. You're going to have an unconstrained Iran nuclear program or you're going to have to use military force uh, to constrain the, the nuclear program. That's. I continue. I make that argument today, right? So, um, look, I, I, I when I look back on that period, I mean, 
the stuff being thrown at us, stuff being thrown at me personally, like the, the, it's not like I emerged from that, you know, with, with not bloodied and bruised. I mean, there was pretty brutal rhetoric uh, used against us at that, at that time. Um, and again, I think if you look at what actually came from the White House, um, it was usually like a, a totally uh, fact-based argument for, hey, here's why we think this is a good deal. Um, and, and we don't own, you know, like we never would have used language like Israel firsters or things like that. That, that never would have come from the White House. Well, I agree with you that there was carefulness to some extent from the White House statements the, on the official side. You did have the White House press secretary with the infamous press conference, you know, basically calling people warmongers. Um, you you did have at times the president making references to lobbyists, you know, and, and who was he referencing? Probably APAC at the time uh, during the fight. But at the same time, it was sort of known, and you talk about it in your book and the excerpts I've seen of you gathered with with people, you gathered with allies, organizations, NIAC, uh, others, and you gave them talking points, you gave them messaging points. They weren't out there sort of blindly using this language on their own. There was this, you know, so-called echo chamber that was created. Wait a second. So let me <laughs> take different pieces of that. On the last piece, any White House meets with outside groups and you know, says, here are our talking points, here's our arguments. Like th there was an effort to kind of paint as nefarious what any communications shop in the White House of any political party just does as a matter of course. And, and it was kind of cast as this kind of, you know, diabolical new tactic employed on the Iran deal. Like, I mean, Jared, you worked in the White House. Like, the, the, yeah. they do the, like the ACA. We had the, you know, what do you think happened in the healthcare debate? They, they met with outside groups and right. they said, here's the case for the ACA. And here are the arguments that people are going to be making against the ACA. And here's how you, here's how we'd suggest that you counter those arguments. And then by the way, the groups go off and make their own cases. Like they don't, they don't stick to the script that the white house provides. them. again, I think there was this kind of effort to cast as, as, you know, Wizard of Oz is behind the curtain, what is really like the routinized nature of, of any White House. I think on the lobbying point, you know, APAC put out a statement opposing the Iran nuclear deal right away and said that they were going to lobby against it. <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't inventing like a story that there were people lobbying against the Iran nuclear deal. Um, they, and they also kind of indicated uh, that they were going to spend, I think, $40 million and they were going to advertise in states. Um, that's their choice. They're more than welcome to do that. That's anybody can lobby for any policy or against any policy they want. That's American democracy. Pointing that out and just saying, like, you know, yeah, there's like we're just naming that there's like a, this is going to be a tough debate. I mean, um, that I think that's just that's just the reality of what the situation was. We weren't the ones that that assigned an APAC or any other group, um, FDD, right? Like where, where you're supposed you're more than welcome to, to lobby against or argue against or mount opposition to a deal. That just is what it is. And I, I don't know why kind of the, the, like in some ways the Iran debate, you know, there was a lot of help to it. There was just like, I've never been a part of a foreign policy initiative that was that thoroughly debated in, in some ways. Right. Um, that's just uh, normal. I think on the, on this war point, look, I mean, it's a different. It's a basic difference of view, um, and the the argument we're making is like one I just made again, which I'll continue to make as long as this is an issue. Like there are different ways of of, of solving this, and frankly, we don't see a way 
if you define the kind of maximalist version of you know um, of what should be accomplished in a nuclear deal to include you know basically and i don't want to caricature but but you know no enrichment or no uh, ballistic missile program a change in iranian foreign policy all but your things that i wish would happen i don't think that those things are possible and so i think that that leaves you with a much narrower set of choices for how you're going to deal with the problem because if you're saying that the only deal that is available is one that we concluded in the Obama White House, and you may disagree, um, we concluded that that's unachievable, th then what is available to a president to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon? It's, it's either some diplomatic agreement that Iran can, can, can be brought into, it's no diplomatic agreement, in which case you have an unconstrained Iran, Iranian nuclear program, which has, again, been the case since the JCPOA was left by the Trump administration, or you're, you're in another war. You're, you're, you're taking military action to roll back that program. I, I still I think that was a legitimate argument to make. Yeah, I mean, obviously, President Obama famously would always say the military option was on the table and he wasn't a warmonger, I think, but by, by your estimation. So so both sides have a military option on the table. We just you choose the JCPOA. We choose a different combination of pressure tactics that are non-military. Um, that haven't, that haven't just, just to clarify, that haven't worked. I mean, you know. well, actually, they, they they did work and probably would have worked had the president reelected. But you know, well, when you go down to four billion dollars left in, in, in excessive, uh, yeah. well, I mean, well, it's true. We'll, we'll get yeah, there. We'll yeah. get there. But 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 just to, just to, just to finish this this one point to, to clarify, you know, for those who were allies of the White House who went out there and used terms like Israel first or in the pocket of the Israel lobby, all that, you condemn that. You're not for that. You understand that that contributes to anti-Semitic tropes. That and that is. That kind of language was quite triggering for a lot of members of Congress and, and for leaders of the Jewish community. Yeah, I, I, like Israel first. Or, I mean, look, I, I think that people I, absolutely I think that, that, you know, you have to be. I think it is entirely the case, as we're experiencing right now, um, that you have to be mindful of anti-Semitic tropes. You have to be mindful of the history of certain arguments um, that have been made to tar all Jews. Um, absolutely uh, suggesting, as Donald Trump did repeatedly, that Jews' loyalty are somehow first to Israel and not to America. So, uh, you know, uh, th that's out of bounds, right? A and again, let's be clear, like, this comes from the right and the left. Um, and it came from the president of the United States, the last president, on more than one occasion, suggesting that somehow uh, Jews had a, a principal loyalty to Israel of the United States. Absolutely. Uh, th that, that kind of language um, is outside of bounds. What I don't think is fair is to 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 weaponize that charge when people are just have a policy disagreement with Bibi Netanyahu, or you know when people like, again on on the APEC point, like I've said this repeatedly, like there are a lot of lobbying groups that represent all kinds of interests that I don't agree with. Um, pointing out that that lobbying exists. Like, who are we kidding? Of course it does. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's part of democracy, right? So there, to me, the over-definition of, of what goes into the category of, of what should be rightfully condemned, I think is, is ultimately counterproductive. We have to figure out a way where we can have debates. There can be differences. There are going to be differences between American administrations and Israeli administrations. There are going to be differences seemingly increasingly between some APAC priorities and some positions in the Democratic Party those debates are part of democracy and we can have them. I think 
absolutely people need to be sensitive in the language that they use um, and, and the, the, the ways they frame their arguments and, and making very clear um, you know, that a policy disagreement with an Israeli prime minister and Israeli government is not with all of Israel itself, never mind all the Jewish people, which would be insane. But uh, uh, like, I think that, you know, that, 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 that you have to be able to, to separate those things out. And, um, but it's a challenge. It, it's absolutely a challenge. Ben, I, w- I would tell you that one of the impetuses behind this podcast, because Rich and I agree on almost nothing uh, foreign policy wise, is that we want to be able to have this conversation like we're having right now in a fact based, civil, you know, w- we were both as patriots heartbroken by what we saw in January. Yeah. Um, even yeah. if we have uncomfortable conversations. Last week, we had a, a really interesting conversation with uh, the delegate from the U.S. Virgin Islands about black Jewish relations. And I want to come back yeah. to that. But my question and, to you, and, and, and about statehood for the Virgin and about Islands, statehood which, which, Islands, which was uncomfortable for many as well so yeah. yeah uh but i would i would want to just come back you know there were people um who talked about people who were in the obama administration who were for the iran deal who may have been jewish or partly jewish uh written in foreign policy magazine and books that somehow uh your jewishness was on trial that you were some kind of a traitor for being for this deal how does that make you feel and and you know should that even be part of the conversation? No, in, in a way, you know, what's so funny, Jared, is that that's kind of a mirror image of the conversation we're just having, right? Like if the core, yeah, if, if, the, if the core, if one of them, any Semitism is such a cancer, right? And, and is it the heart of the opposite of everything I believe in? <laughs> because as an American, what I believe in is like everybody has a place here. Everybody can have their own identities and be an American, a full American, um, and 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 the, the 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 assumption, the presumption that because you are Jewish, you have like a higher um, loyalty to Israel is is playing right into um, an anti-Semitic trope, uh, and the same way that suggesting that someone who is not sufficiently in line with the policies of the Jewish state must not really be Jewish or must be a self-hating Jew, must have some issues with their, their parents or something like that. That's the mirror image of the charge because it's, it, it, it's accepting the premise of the anti-Semitic trope, right? And, and, and to me, um, you know, I, I, I've tried to acknowledge um, the complexity of, of these issues in that I'm not a religious Jew. Um, I was not raised in the religion of Judaism. Um, my mother was Jewish. She was a New York Jewish mother. So that's like a very, very strong cultural, uh, historical, um, a- 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 you know, uh, attachment I have to Jewish identity. I mean, I was raised, I w- if you'd asked me when I was a kid, you know, what my identities were, um, I actually would have said, you know, I'm an American, I'm a New Yorker, and, and I come from a Jewish background. Um, that's, that's, that's how I thought of, that was my truth. That's, that's how I thought of my own identity. Um, and, and it was deeply informed by the historical experience of, of the Jewish people. It was deeply informed by, obviously, the Holocaust. It was deeply informed by the immigrant experience in the United States because my family had come from Europe over a course of many years and kind of followed that classic, you know, Brooklyn, Lower East Side, City College, you know, um, pathway. Right, right. And Jared, you know how you talked about this. Like, that, that was who I was. And so... You know, when I occasionally kind of get dragged into this, I, I just think that 
Um, I didn't want, just as I don't think it's it's fair to um, suggest that your identity, whatever your Jewish identity is, kind of makes you, you know, self-hating if you have uh, issues with, you know, certain policies of the Israeli government or something. I also just don't think people people should be able to determine their own identity and, and, and what, what's important to them and where they come from and who they are. Um, that one of the great things about the American Jewish community is, is just how sprawling it is and, and how that, what that, how different things mean, you know, you know, you know, some people, there are different aspects to the, the, the way in which obviously the religion is practiced. There are different aspects in the way in which people think of themselves as being shaped by being Jewish, you know, and I know I'm one of those people. I'm in the book. I mean, I'm, I'm not, this isn't just a swerve into the book. But what I was really wrestling with was like, you know, the rise of, of ethno-nationalism around the world and how that can bleed into authoritarianism and, and how dangerous that is ultimately to the Jewish people. Because, you know, we've seen the dark places that that can lead. You know, I felt deeply informed by my family background and just how I set out to write that book and how I think about things like blood and soil nationalism you know, that you see emanating, you know, from, from lots of different parts of the world today. So um, I'm glad you guys have this space. Um, even if Rich and I don't agree, I'm sure about the JCPOA or all manner of things. I'd like, I'd just love for us to get, get back to a place where, you know, we, we are accepting of each other's legitimate, you know, and authentic identities, you know, without kind of casting it in, in, in these other terms. It's, it's funny you say that. I, I think about that every day. And a lot of it in my context, in my sort of career on Capitol Hill before, you know, the administration, before state government was in a real bipartisan manner, right? I worked for a moderate uh, Republican out of the North Shore of Illinois, sort of like that Northeast Rockefeller yeah. Republican yeah. mold. And everything we did was bipartisan, right? He's always up for a re-election. The D-Trips targeting him was in the House, you know, DSCC target in the Senate. And... Iran Israel type issues were were a hundred to nothing in the Senate, right? Like we we did the Central Bank of Iran sanctions twenty eleven a hundred to nothing, right? With Bernie Sanders even supporting it, and it felt like there were times when you would say, "Oh, the partisan rancor is just out of control. Nobody can agree with it." But we could always come together in this foreign policy nexus. And for a lot of people, including me, there is this feeling that you sort of wrecked it. You know, that 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 fight and the way it was conducted over the Iran deal wrecked the bipartisan nature of a critical issue. And we may never recover. Right. You, you now you might find it to be an accomplishment of, because your worldview is different. And, you you know, that was an accomplishment. Of you. For a lot of people with my worldview, it's like, man, now there's really nothing. There is nothing we can agree on anymore. Like we used to be able to just completely agree on this. And we can't even agree on this anymore. And that's that's a disappointment. So I'm going to answer this kind of in a longer way, Rich, which is, but because I, I really want to make this this point, where I'm going to end up is it that I think Prime Minister Netanyahu wrecked it. Um, but but I'm going to start at the beginning. Um, you know, I was like when I moved to DC um, in 2002, 2003, um, I, I, I was an APAC like donor. I had like that the APAC card, you know, that you got, you know. Um, I've been, you know, I like support for Israel was was, you know, sacrosanct in, in my in my household. Um, they, we were raised by my the you know there were heroes in my household, Golda Meir, and 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 Yitzhak Rabin, and the whole founding generation really of Israel. Um, and and I continue to be um, a, a, like a, a a 
I, I wrote speeches for President Obama that I hope people can read. You know, the speech he gave in Jerusalem, the speech he gave eulogizing Shimon Peres, where, you know, I felt, you know, the, 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 the unique and, and historically essential story uh, of Zionism um, and the achievement of it, you know, is something I still feel very deeply. Um, I never, you know, it's, it's funny, it's, it's not unlike partisanship in the sense that, like, I never intended to become this big partisan. Like, I was writing speeches for Barack Obama in 2008 about, you know, red states and blue states and we had to come together. Um, I think, like, the reality here is that, like, as a Democrat, and, and yeah, as a progressive Democrat, um, over the course of, you know, the last 12 years, I've felt the Israeli government through its policies, and Prime Minister Netanyahu in particular, moving away from what I believed in. And, and, and I, I've found it to be the, the people who, who, who blame us for the, the current state of the relationship between the Democratic Party and the Israeli government are basically saying to us, if you don't, you know, that we have to adjust our views on the Palestinian issue or on the Iranian nuclear issue um, to be aligned with Bibi Netanyahu's particular views, or else we're wrecking the relationship. I don't think that's fair um, because policies that would have been mainstream, like around Oslo in the 90s up to Camp David, about a two-state solution and what that solution would look like. Uh, now, if you take those positions, you're seen as somehow anti-Israel. Like it's the same position. Like I, I have the same position today on the Israeli-Palestinian issue as I did when I was an APAC kind of card-carrying donor in 2004. What's changed is Israeli politics. And on the Iran issue, we, we, we just, you know, we didn't break norms by the way in which we made the case for the diplomatic agreement that we had always said that we were trying to, to reach um, through the Obama administration. It was Prime Minister Netanyahu who, at the invitation of a Republican Speaker of the House, without even telling us, we didn't, we didn't learn from the Israeli government, we learned from a press release from John Boehner that, that the Prime Minister of Israel was going to come and make a speech to the U.S. Congress against like a signature foreign policy issue. That's not the Democratic Party picking a fight with with the Israeli prime minister, it's the opposite here. So I'm, I, I, we didn't do everything perfect, I'm sure. Like, find fault with what we did. You guys, like, you do, you know, obviously, like, have mounted a lot of arguments against what, what we've done on our policies. But on this one, I really just, I really don't believe anybody in the Democratic Party got up one day and was like, you know what we really want to do? We want to start having really intense disagreements with the Israeli government. That was not our intention. Um, it, it was just the reality of, an Israeli prime minister who w was already to the right and went further and further to the right, I think, over the last 12 years. And, and by the way, don't take my word for it. Listen to him. Um, a guy who made a speech in 2009 about the need for a two-state solution now says today that there'll be no two-state solution on his watch. I mean, that's, that's not an evolution in the Democratic Party. That's an evolution in the Likud Party. Jared, I want to get you in here before we, we dive deeper into JCPOA. But, but my one observation in response to that is... The 1990s had a very clear parallel of right and left politics yes. for Americans and Israelis. And the second intifada changed Israeli politics way beyond Prime Minister Netanyahu. There's a reason why they keep reelecting him, right? The, if you look at the or, polling. Or not. On, on, or not. Well, well <laughs> or not. But they, they, you know, if you look at the polling, though, on these issues, 
that we have we have reached the point of departure where the American left sort of still is living in the 1990s and the Israeli left doesn't really exist in that nature. They yeah, do on domestic yeah. issues. They just don't on security. It's a issues. really good point, Rich. Um, and I'd say two things to build on it. Rahm Emanuel, you know, I remember making this point after Bibi was elected. And one of the great... My former mayor. Yeah, well, former one mayor. of the great what-ifs of history, right, is if Zippy Livni can form a coalition in 2009. But, um, um, you know, that it's just when, yeah, that there usually was a parallel left-right in both countries. Um, kind of like there's usually been one with us and the British. And, um, and, and, and he was very, you know, he's like, you just don't make progress on this issue if, if, if the government's, <laughs> you've got a left-wing government in the U.S. and a right-wing government in Israel. Um, and that, you know, um, that that's that's been the the reality. I, I I guess what I say, I don't like having these, you know, contrary to probably what <laughs> the Jewish insider audience might think. I hate having these fights. It hurts. It's really painful, you know. And I I'm I'm sure people might say that things I like that that you know they don't like the fights either. I, I'd rather this didn't exist. But when what I keep coming back to is. At the end of the day, even if you don't like criticism on on uh, of the Israeli government, you don't you certainly don't like criticism of the Israeli government during a Gaza war. You got to answer the question for me. There are seven million Palestinians. Like, what is going to happen to them? Like, are, are they going to have a state? Are they going to have equal rights in one state? Are they going to leave? Are like are are they going to have lesser rights? What is the answer? Like, because I I think that. If the if your point is true, if Israelis have just moved to the right, prioritize security, don't trust peace, we pulled out of Gaza, we got rockets. Let's say that all those things are true. You still have to answer this question of what happens to the Palestinians. Um, they live there. You know, there's seven million of them between uh, the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. A bunch of them in Israel. A bunch of them in West Bank and Gaza. Um, and 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 that I I think that uh, like it, if the Israeli government or or, or could, could produce better answers, um, you know there there there'd be less there'd certainly be less criticism. Um, uh, you know, so you, it's not enough to just move to the right. You still need to answer that question. So Ben, how do you define Zionism in 2021? Well, I mean, I think what it's always been is that the the, the Jewish people uh deserve a homeland in 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 their historic homeland and i mean that's the the simplest version right um it's right. you know what was I, I i learned a lot you know I, i'll tell you like a mistake i made you know believe it or not i i can admit error um i remember in the cairo speech um you know which i helped president obama write we made reference to israel's history um being rooted in a tragic past and we made particular reference to the holocaust and our intention in doing that, by the way, was to call out Holocaust denial um, in in the Muslim world, um, and and to kind of speak to the fact that, like, if you had had the Holocaust in your recent memory as a people, it's totally legitimate to be particularly concerned about security. You know, um, that was our basic argument. I got a bunch of pushback. Well, you suggested that Israel only exists because of the Holocaust. And that was a totally fair and, and, and accurate criticism to discount the fact that this is the historic homeland of the Jewish people. And that, and that by the way, like the, the journey um, back to Israel didn't 
just commence with the Holocaust itself, right? Um, I understand that. I also, what's also complicated for me, and I admit I have a totally imperfect um, uh, uh, understanding of this, um, but it's probably a, an understanding that's not distinct and dissimilar from, from some other you know, pretty secular American Jews, is kind of in my household, like even though Zionism is obviously uh, about like a Jewish homeland and a Jewish state, there was a secular kind of component to it as well, in the sense that like um, Israel was founded on and, and kind of governed on these kind of socialist principles, you know? Um, again, like the kind of liberal New York Jewish tradition where people like look to the kibbutz, right? Bernie Sanders um, could, 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 you know, um, could plug into that experience. And um, I remember also in the Obama years, the, the, there was a kind of a growing emphasis, which kind of led into the nationality laws in Israel, on on kind of affirming Israel's identity as a Jewish state, um, not rooted just in that kind of Zionist tradition, but rooted in kind of how, you, you know, in ways that as it got into those nationality laws, start to affect, you know, who can be here, what rights are for people who aren't Jewish, and that's where it starts to be much more complicated to me, right? In the sense of, um, well, what are the rights for, for people who live in Israel, right? Who are, who are Palestinian, who are Arabs, who are not, who are not Jews. And, and, and that's another area where I think, you know, there, there's going to have to be a lot of discussion, debate about that, because I think that if you look at the Jewish tradition and, and Jewish ethics and, um, and how much, uh, that has contributed to, 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 to political thinking around equality, um, you, you know, there's an inconsistency in saying that we're not going to give equal rights to all people who live here. All right. Changing gears, as Jared would say. As I would uh, say. As he would say. Uh, JCPOA. Uh, I, I do want to get into this a little more. We'll, we'll walk out a little bit for some people, but but I think it'll be very helpful to dissect your worldview and also perhaps clear up, you know, myths that are out there. Um, and so to start, I have sort of, uh, like a lightning round, right? Uh, just some series, just you know, not the fun lightning round that'll come later, but yeah, we have a, a, we have a fun lightning round at a, the end, a, a series lightning round, which, which is really just sort of your top line worldviews on, on this region, on this issue. Right. And, and I think there are a lot of, a lot of things that people would assume about you and I don't want them to assume, uh, do you agree that Iran is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism? And that's a very bad thing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you believe it, although they're that getting Hamas some, they're getting some a... stiff competition these days? <laughs> uh, but yeah. 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 <laughs> you agree that Hamas and Hezbollah are both terrorist organizations. They should be named terrorist organizations. They should be on the terror list. They are. They do bad things. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you believe sort of in a concept of good and evil in the world? Yeah, in the world and inside of individual human beings. Yeah. And in your view, the Islamic Republic of Iran, does it fall into the evil camp? I, I don't like calling any, any country evil um, because I think that countries are made up of individuals. Um, there are evil people in the Islamic Republic of Iran. There are good people who live in that country. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is core to my worldview. I, I, I would not point at any one country in the world and say that country is evil. Um, uh, or, well, obviously, or, or not Iranians, right? Iranians are 
a lot of them very pro-Western uh, and hate their government, but the regime, the regime that is the Islamic Republic of Iran. My, so, like, Rich, this is actually, you, you know, and here I think we'll have a difference. Um, I, I had this experience uh, negotiating with Cuba, and, and, you know, where actually, you know, I'm much more experienced in the negotiations with Cuba than, than Iran. And we look at that and we say, this is an autocratic government. It's terrible. Um, and, and, and absolutely, it's an autocratic government. No, no government is monolithic. Um, government, there are, there are different people inside of these regimes. There are technocrats in the Islamic Republic of Iran who I don't think are evil people. Um, there are some evil people who are hateful and Holocaust deniers and killers and the rest of it and, and as well. But no, I don't. I wouldn't look at the, uh, uh, any one government or nation and say it's a monolith. All those people are the same. All those people are, are evil. Um, I, I think that, that the U.S. makes a mistake sometimes in its foreign policy, and we deny ourselves opportunities to make diplomatic progress when we look at, at whole governments, uh, which are incredibly complicated organisms filled with very different people, and say that whole government is just is 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 evil. Um, I don't think any government is a monolith. I don't. I mean, we can even go. We can even go back to look at you know the North Vietnamese regime, right? And say you know they they were the bad guys. They were evil, but but the reality was actually much more complicated about what the North Vietnamese regime wanted vis a vis the South. And you can look, you know, time after time in American history. Well, I, I, listen, the, the, the hawkish, most hawkish of people, the, the people who are for regime change, right? I, I have colleagues I know, Ruel, Mark Gorek, you know, uh, big scholar, Ray Takei over at CFR. They would all argue there are these pockets of different factions in the regime. It's not monolithic, as you say, absolutely. But the core, th- you know, thesis of the regime still includes things like wiping Israel off the map, right? Delivering a second Holocaust effectively, which is also the same mandate thesis of Hezbollah and Hamas, which receive funding and support from Iran as well. So, uh, you know, from that basis, would we agree that those goals, aspirations those goals that are they evil. have- like The goal of wiping Israel off evil. the map are evil, right? <laughs> okay. yeah, 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 that's an easy one. But again, I, I just think like uh, to, to Jared's point, like, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union the evil empire, right? But Mikhail Gorbachev was not evil. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev, um, you know, probably saved more lives than maybe any human being who's ever lived by uh, allowing the, the Cold War to end peacefully. So I, I, I just think we really, I don't know, man, like I, 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 I respect the impulse towards total moral clarity here. And there are some things that cross boundaries that have to be called out and named as evil, as bad, as, as, as irredeemable. Um, but I think when you start applying that label to whole governments, even ones that do odious things that, that, uh, that have odious origins, um, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that ends well. And, and I also think it denies you opportunities and I think it, it dehumanizes people. I, I you know, and here's maybe, maybe I'm a lefty. I just, um, but I don't, I don't, I don't like to look at the world like that. Well, and, and Ben, can I ask sort of a, it's a little bit of a tangent here, but you know, Rich and I have been talking a lot of late about the, the far left making common cause with, with, uh, with, you know, Hamas with, with maybe with the Iranian regime. And I guess the thing that struck me the most during the most recent conflict is how the, like not 
far left, but just the left really totally glossed over a lot of the failings of the Hamas regime in Gaza, like how awful they are to women, how awful they are to the LGBT community, you know, how awful they are about basic services for their people. And, and they were lobbing, you know, hundreds of rockets into mainland Israel indiscriminately. And they just sort of glossed over all that. Like, what is the Democratic Party and the left in general to do? Because are, are they being duped? Are, are, or is there something else going on here that, that we can't yet explain? Well, the contrast, I would add, to Israel, right, which has right, really right. opened which... up on LGBTQ, on, on women. Iran, of course. I mean, well, there, there are no gay people in Iran, as we're told. So, you know, we, we know what their record is there. I, I – um... There's a lot to say about that. I mean, the first thing I'd say is that I wouldn't want to um, ever be in a point where the um, the positions of my, I mean, I'd say this is American, right? He's been critical of aspects of American foreign policy. I, I wouldn't want to, to, to say that my actions should not be scrutinized because of the, the nature of my adversaries, right? Um, I think that, that leads, that, that, the slippery slope, um, you know, in, in this country, I think that led to some of the excesses of the war on terror, right? Um, and, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> I was at that debate. Um, right. I don't know. I, I, I think, like, obviously, um, the, the, the approach I take from the progressive standpoint would be this. It's that we take, obviously, Hamas is a bad actor. Um, we, we, it's not like we're not doing, we, we, I mean, Jared, one of the things I'm proudest of is like the Iron Dome system, right? We, like, which, which we went above and beyond to, 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 to support precisely because we wanted to help protect Israeli citizens from Hamas, you know? Um, there are enormous efforts being pursued by the U.S. government to, to try to be a part of an effort to interdict support from Iran or anybody else that's trying to go into Hamas in terms of the, the development of these rockets. I think there's two... It, issues that I'd highlight that may go beyond where you guys are on this um, in terms of criticisms. Um, the first is that, uh, has the current policy worked? I mean, we basically had a version of a blockade on Gaza for, you know, uh, since the 2006, 2007 period when Hamas comes to power. Um, and, you know, the people there are clearly hurting. Um, they don't have access to, to, to water and electricity for most of the day. They, they, don't, really, they have, don't have freedom of movement. They're, they're, there's a collective kind of suffering in Gaza that uh, obviously Hamas is acutely responsible for, but also this policy that was supposed to be designed to, to somehow hurt Hamas, it seems to have not hurt. Hamas is still there. They're still able to get these rockets, and all these Palestinians are suffering who are not in Hamas. They're not all in Hamas, you know? And, and so if you look at that, you think, but, but the, but the persecution of LGBTQ and women yeah. doesn't, doesn't happen because of the blockade. It has nothing to do that with this. Right? No, that's, that's, that, that, that's the Hamas. Is why isn't that in a, in a tension grabber for the progressive community? Like why does progressive values, you know, well, end, end at the water's I, edge I think I, I, in the cases of Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah. I think because, and I'm just trying to explain to you the mindset here. This is actually, I'm not actually debating this. I'm just trying to explain the mindset is that when there's kind of this, um, 
obviously condemn the persecution of LGBT rights, obviously um, condemn, you know, the, the, the violent nihilism, terrorism, you know, arson of Hamas. Um, but I think when there's this kind of constant effort to, to ask people to focus on that, it's like, well, it, it sounds like you're trying to avoid looking at, you know, why are these kids getting killed um, in these periodic Gaza wars? Why are the people there suffering? Is that helping? That's not helping the rights of, you know, like 60 plus Palestinian kids getting killed is not helping LGBT rights in, in Gaza. You know, it, it just feels like. Uh, like, like they're not playing. There's no law. There's no end there's state. No end state is what, I yeah. think we're getting. Yeah. And, and so there, that, that, that's a kind of the utilitarian argument I would make here is that even from an Israeli security and anti-Hamas perspective, this approach which I lived for eight years and which, because, you know, it's not like, I mean, we supported Israel's right to defend itself and took a lot of flack from the left at the time, although not nearly as much as now. Um, like, I've been a part of this approach that doesn't seem to solve this problem. And, and, and the problem, you know, of Hamas and its rockets and its, its being entrenched in Gaza, it doesn't, you know, the blockade is clearly hurting the people there, but it doesn't seem to be dislodging Hamas. So isn't there a better way of doing this? Um, and I also think, though, that the, the broader issue is that the lack of it, it's the question that came back to earlier. The reason that the, you see more voices on this on, on the progressive side, some of it is the, what I talked about earlier, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Some of it is, you know, the, 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 the new generation of progressive activism in this country is is very focused on structural inequality generally. And they look at the, the progression of events in Israel and the West Bank and Gaza, and it, it fits into a broader worldview of. Well, that's a structural inequity. What what are, what rights do Palestinians have? What opportunities do they have? And so, I, I, what's interesting about it is it's 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 not like the old like we're singling Israel out. That's actually like they're making they're making versions of that criticism in a lot of places now. Um, and, and I think you're right to, to 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 you're right to flag for them. Hey, what about these guys? Um, they're, 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 it's not like Hamas is for uh, equality. Absolutely, you, you should point that out. I think there's what what progressives would say is yes, but that doesn't that doesn't justify an approach that seems to both not be working and dislodging Hamas, and that seems to be perpetuating and exacerbating structural inequality, not just in Gaza, but but in 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 the West Bank, but even in places like Haifa, right, and, and certainly in Jerusalem. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'd like. I think it's important, though, that, that we have like conversations like this because because um, better to air all these different perspectives um, rather than just kind of have conversations with our own you know team on on these things. But I don't want to deny we, Rich uh, his his JCPOA questions because oh, he's yeah, been go for it, talking yeah. about this yeah. for. But- <laughs> I've waited my whole life for this. No, no, no. Uh, well, you kind of know what I'm going to no, say, my, but you had a lightning round. I, 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 I do. I do. I, I, the senior administration official, I, I know what he says a lot. I know. And, I know. and the senior Senate aide, I feel like you guys have been a lot in the same news story over the years. But I thought, uh, but honestly, like I, I thought the question about the Islamic Republic, I mean, that is a difference, but I, I want you to know, it doesn't mean that I don't see the, the horrific excesses of the Islamic Republic. I mean, I, I, like, I just happen to think that the most important priority is to stop them from getting a nuclear weapon. And I happen to think that the JCPOA was the best way to do that. You know, um, that is a great segue to my question. Great segue. Uh, so it stems from the lightning round question. It stems from what you just said um, as well. When you tried to sell the JCPOA to Congress, 
everyone from President Obama on down, you know, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of State, Undersecretary. One of the things that was repeated over and over again, uh, because it was one of the criticisms, was no matter what, we will be able to impose terrorism sanctions on Iran going forward. I have a copy of the White House explainer on it. It goes very detailed, very specific into the exact executive order, 13224, that we can use. And so lifted sanctions, you know, called them all nuclear sanctions. Won't debate that for the moment. But obviously, over time, during the Trump administration, a lot of the executive order 13224 sanctions were applied based on credible evidence, the Treasury Department, State Department, Justice Department, all, all vetted. You know how sanctions work. And they've been imposed on the Islamic Republic. And so this is now a point of tension because Secretary Blinken testified in January during his confirmation hearing saying, you know, we support terrorism sanctions. We're going to leave them. They're not inconsistent with JCPOA, which sounds very much like what we were told, you know, back in 2015. But now you have Rob Malley, the special envoy for Iran, who's been trotting out there and now says, well, actually, some of those sanctions are inconsistent with with the JCPOA. And sounds like he's saying that if sanctions were ever lifted for for a bank, for a company, for a person under the JCPOA to begin with, blanket immunity for all of them to finance terrorism, which to me is totally not what we were told. Um where do you come down on this? The issue of terrorism sanctions on Iran. Were we misled in 2015 when when you all told us that we could impose those? Uh, are are we not allowed to impose terrorism sanctions when there's evidence of it? So first of all, we uh, the reason we we imposed additional terrorism related sanctions, I think, in the in 2016. You know, so we continued to pursue designations under existing executive orders even after the implementation um, of the JCPOA. And there's a whole, as you know, Rich, like there's a whole sanctions architecture um, um, on Iran that that continued even after the implementation of the JCPOA. It's not like you know American businesses were were, were able to pour into to Iran here, um, as well as you know even European businesses and others had to be very careful um, even during that period of implementation um, to not run afoul of, of, of sustained U.S. sanctions. I think what what Rob is speaking to, and and look, this is one an area where I think there was a, I think the perception, and it, you heard this in some of the reports that came out of the Trump administration, and even from folks at FDD, uh, like that towards the end of the Trump administration, there was kind of an, a flood of these, you know, that felt like they were designed to prevent or make harder the return to the JCPOA itself. Like the, the pace of sanctions in the last few months of the Trump um, administration felt like it was designed to, to be blunt, sabotage an effort to get back in the JCPOA. And that the very hard work that I'm sure is happening in these negotiations is not like Rob or anybody else saying, let's get rid of all these sanctions entirely. It's just trying to sort out, you know, what 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 do we think is a nuclear related sanction and 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 what do we think needs to stay in place and you and i and i'm sure you and rob would have and i'm not there it's hard for me to look at the, all these designations and sort one from the other i think the simple explanation i give is that you and you and i and rob robin you probably have different definitions um for um uh for that but that doesn't mean, no, by no means is that, I think that if the Biden team, let's say they're successful, let's say they get back in the JCPOA, I'm sure they would continue to pursue 
um, additional terrorism-related designations going forward, as they should. I, I just think that there's a belief that is not unique to, to, to Rob Malley or, and I'm not, I don't want to speak for Rob. So there's a belief that's not unique to me that, that there was a kind of a, a, a particularly broad use of uh, designations, particularly towards the end of the Trump years, that felt like a, an effort to undermine any return to the JCPOA, not just pure terrorism-related policy. So, so, so let me push back on that in a couple of ways. One, if you have evidence of financing terrorism, right, you have to produce that, as you know. The intelligence community has to validate it. It has to get declassified. It becomes a sanctions package. Career civil servants at state and treasury have to validate. DOJ has to validate that it can withstand legal challenge. And that means it is, if you're using the executive order for financing terrorism, exact evidence of terrorism finance, not nuclear, right? And if you're talking about a period of time when you would be trying to stop a Biden administration from coming back in, it would have to be a period of time where you expected a Biden administration to be in office, which would have to be, you know, at least mid to late 2020, if you believe things were going bad and you you you, you get given up on hope of, of reelection, if not after you know, the November election itself, and you're in transition. You go back, I'll give you a specific example. The Central Bank of Iran is designated in late 2019. There's no pandemic, September 20th, 2019, full evidence of terrorism finance using the executive order for terrorism that Barack Obama said we could use. And that is now reportedly on the table to be lifted. There's no way that Donald Trump or anybody who worked for him in the administration believed that he wouldn't win re-election in September of 2019. It clearly was not used to stop going back to JCPOA. So my question is, when clearly they go ahead and lift those sanctions and claim whatever they're going to claim, do we have the right to reimpose those sanctions on a terrorism basis if the Central Bank of Iran continues to finance terrorism? Well, look, I want to answer a couple of things here. First... Again, not having all the evidentiary basis in front of me, I think the reality is that there was like a, a much greater pace of designations towards the end of the Trump administration that, that again, would suggest like I like it, it, it would suggest that something changed. Like when when there, there was a directive given in the U.S. government to do something, people do it, you know. Um, and yes, they're experts and yes, they have to form a, a basis. But but the, certainly I think that. The appearance was that there was an effort to, to kind of pile on as many sanctions. Um, uh, I, you know, look, I'm assigning a motive here in ways that we're going to make it harder to get back into JCPOA. On the central bank, I mean, that that was done after the Trump administration withdrew from the JCPOA, and and you guys know it's like core to to like the capacity of make of, of the United States fulfilling its commitments under the JCPOA to facilitate you know, uh, uh, Iran's ability to access so, some of their own revenues, right? And this is one of the things that drives me crazy. Like we wrote them a check for, you know, X billion dollars. No, like th that that is central to the, the formula of JCPOA. It doesn't work without that, you know? Um, so I don't think anybody should be surprised that they're, they're looking at this question of the central bank because it gets to, to whether the United States and the P5 plus one um, can basically just live up to our own obligations under the JCPOA. Um, so, so no, wait, wait. So, so wait, this is a this is a huge, huge, huge issue, right? Because you sold the Iran deal on this basis. If you're saying that we have the right to impose terrorism sanctions, but not on any bank that makes Iran money, 
Those banks are immune from terrorism sanctions because they make Iran money, but they can be used to finance terrorism. That means the deal is providing a blanket immunity on terrorism finance. We are not allowed. I don't to think so. I don't. Richard, I, I think you're not have a different view on this. I, I just don't, I don't think that's the case because if you look at the web of sanctions that continue to exist for the Iranians, they, they were not even when we were implementing the deal precisely because there's so many secondary sanctions. Right? There's so many punishments that can be met, meted out not just on the Iranians but on people who do business with sanctions entities and individuals in Iran. Precisely because of that, they were not getting some flood of investment from around the world, even when we were in the deal. You know, again, there's. But that's a that's a market risk issue. That's not the technical. Can we impose sanctions? We, we can. were told we, we can absolutely impose can, sanctions. and I, I would never rule anything out. And by the way, we also built in the the whole snapback so that all the sanctions can snap back, snap back. So I leave it to the not me. I leave it to the Biden administration. I'm sure they would say that they, that they that. And again, I don't speak for them. I, I don't, and I don't really know. I'm, I'm not talking to, to Rob, um, but but my, my he's got a book to sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I'm, I'm <laughs> I, you know, they probably think I'm a pain in the ass too at this point. But tell Rob he can but, come on. He's I, welcome I, on. We can talk about I think it on the, the show. The core point here, and Mitch, you understand this as a sanctions expert, is that there there is such an intricate web of sanctions that uh, that there there is a capacity to provide them the relief um, that was agreed to under the JCPOA while still going after individuals and entities and having kind of a broader chilling effect so that it's not just like open for business here in Iran. It just says, I think if they get back in the JCPOA, they will say, like, we reserve the right unilaterally to do whatever we think is necessary. And to say, you know, um, they're not going to rule out sanctioning any entity in Iran uh, in a post-JCPOA 2.0 world. Um, well, I, I think that's exactly what Rob Malley is saying and what you are saying, that you will rule out sanctioning the Central I'm Bank of Iran that. for terrorism I'm, I'm, because it would deny them I'm not. Revenue. I would not say that we'd rule that out. What I'm saying is that if we're going to get back into the deal, we have to kind of return to the terms of the deal that we walked away from. Um, uh, it, it wasn't the Iranians who walked away from the deal. It was Trump who walked away from the deal in 2018. So, and so, so we have to return. So so an interesting interesting modification. So the idea would be you could li- you have to lift those sanctions to get back to day one of implementation. But then you still believe we could reimpose sanctions for terrorism if that conduct continued. Of course you could. You could reimpose those sanctions on, even on the Central Bank of Iran. You're, you're not going to – no American policymaker should or would, I think, rule out um, uh, any particular sanction. I, I do think, though, that there's these two issues, right, that, that you've identified that where we just have a, a difference on, right, which is um, – one was this kind of flurry of, of sanctions towards the end of the Trump administration, excessive and intended to kind of make it more difficult to return to JCPOA. I think so. You probably don't. Um, and two, can, how, can you, how can you have pulled out of an agreement that you negotiated, the United States government, and then negotiate the reentry to that deal, not starting from the baseline of where that deal stood in 2018 when the United States pulled out? And look, there are, always, there are going to be additional sanctions, I'm sure, that were put in place post uh, uh, JCPOA withdrawal that stay in place too. What Rob, the very tough job that Rob has to figure out um, is 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 what is necessary and fair to get back into this deal, and what is necessary uh, and fair in terms of uh, obviously like we're we're, our, we're preserving our capacity to sanction uh, on non nuclear related issues. I would also say that if you are the U.S. president um, and you're assessing wh- what is more important to me. Right. And this, again, I think, Rich, is where you and I have a difference. 
what is most important to me, probably, if I'm the U.S. president, certainly Barack Obama, so I can only speak for him, um, is that Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapon and that we have verification of that, that we are rolling back their program to, to, to JCPOA levels from where they are now or where they were in, in 2015. That, that, that policy objective is more important than like any one particular terrorism-related designation that we're going to make, because we have so many terrorism-related designations that we are going to be able to continue to use that tool and continue to, to deny resources uh, to, to, to the Iranians, never comp like to, 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 in totality, but, but like, you have to be able to say, like saying that we're going to deny ourselves the capacity of a nuclear deal because we just want to sanction these people is, is a view. It's a maximum pressure view. My criticism of that is I don't see any evidence that that affects Iranian behavior. <laughs> like it, it, it well, like, that's, but that's not, but that's not really what it is, right? This, but, this is no, based but, on but, conduct. But, but Rich, and, and no, if, this if, is really important. If, this is a, the core difference. Sanctions are not an end in themselves. I mean, I hear it. It's, correct. I agree with you. I agree with like you. We agree on that. No, like the end is using sanctions. We could sanction like anybody. To, we, we sanctioned Cuba to the end of the world and it's achieved nothing, you know? Um, so I, I agree with yeah. you. I, I don't agree with you on Cuba, but I agree with you on the point that sanctions are not an end in of itself. However, sanctions on a bank do stop finance of, of terrorism, and the budgets, obviously, of Hamas and, and Hezbollah did go down during the sanctions period. They will go back up when you relieve the sanctions. That's just how sanctions work. We could talk about yeah, this yeah. for a while. I, I do want to ask just a couple of questions. Uh, and then we'll get well. to the lightning round. Okay, Rich? It, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. I know. I'll, I'll, I have so many questions. I have so many questions. We'll, we'll do, we'll do, I'll, 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 I'll narrow I think down. you and Ben should get a podcast. Here, I think, you know, it could be fun. It could be fun. Right, okay. Here, here's my question. Would you support uh, nuclear assistance to Saudi Arabia for Saudi Arabia to have a nuclear program in which they enrich uranium on their own soil? No. Would you support amending the one, two, three agreement with the UAE to allow the Emirates to enrich uranium on their own soil? No, look, I, I, um, so yeah. the obvious question I'm coming to, why on earth would you accept an Iranian enrichment program if your answer to the first two were no? We're not the ones building you're, what you're seeing. We're not providing them with the, the inputs for their nuclear program, Rich. I mean, like, I would, I would support, I would love for there to be no enrichment capacity whatsoever inside of Iran. Uh, like, I, I, you know, we're dealing with reality, you know, like, like, like policymakers have to deal with, like, the world as it is to use, to use the title of my first book. And, and so, yeah, like I'd prefer there be no enrichment whatsoever. It's not like the United States is through some agreement providing that enrichment capacity into Iran. Um, what we're trying to do is limit that enrichment capacity, put it under ex exceptional verification uh, and monitoring measures to make sure that it, 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 they're, they're meeting their obligations. Um, you know, I, I, these, the one, two, three agreement is a very different beast than the JCPOA. The JCPOA is not a one, two, three agreement. But if we have a gold state, right, if we if we wanted to stand for something as a common nonproliferation policy, as a gold standard of no enrichment, then why wouldn't we continue to demand Iran's halt to enrichment? Because I would rather have the restrictions of the JCPOA than have a policy that is never going to achieve its objective. That's a recipe for Iran continuing to develop its enrichment capacity until it has a nuclear weapon. In 2031, under the, under the sunsets, of course, they're allowed to enrich as much as they want up to weapons grade. And as, as we've said a, a million and a half times, uh, all the same options are available to the United States 
at any point in the duration of the JCPOA to determine that you know, we want to reimpose sanctions, you know, on the central bank if we, you know, we we so choose. Uh, military options are all available. Why would you not? And Israeli, like you hear this from Israeli military planners. Why, if the, I mean, this is what drives me insane, Rich. Like, if the argument is that there are there are circumstances that could take place in ten or fifteen years from the original negotiation of the JCPOA, why would you then pull out of the deal so those circumstances happen today? Like, you know, like which is what's happened since we pulled out of the deal. They like, why would like even Israeli military planner tell you like, yeah, I'm worried about those sense of provisions, but I'd rather pocket the ten years uh, and worry about it in ten years. JCPOA, which didn't know there was a nuclear archive, which didn't know there were nuclear sites, which didn't know there's nuclear material, which, by the way, there Wait, is still an NPT investigation going on today, those files, those were which all, you didn't know about in 2015. We did. Like the, most of those files were, were like rooted in, in the years, years and years before. They weren't about present activity. You're talking about like past activity. You're talking about no, no, you you knew, you knew in 2015 that Iran was concealing undeclared nuclear material and sites that we're just learning about thanks to that material. I'm not going to talk about exactly what I did in 2015. You, you know that. You know, I, yeah. I, There's no way I, I'm going to talk about I, that. I, I, I'm pretty sure you didn't know. I, I'm not going to say but, I knew but, everything but, but, that like uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu you know, publicized, but like let's just say that the United States government like did a lot of homework about the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, I, I, let me just say that thanks to Israeli intelligence somehow doing, which will be a great Netflix movie, going and finding that archive, we have an active NPT investigation today that didn't which exist is great. in 2015. I mean, which is great. I mean, like, again, the, the JCPOA didn't foreclose any of that, you know? Like, that's the thing. The JCPOA does all the. I, I just, what I don't understand about these arguments is like, the JCPOA like, didn't foreclose all these other policy options and, and investigatory options and the rest of it. It just said we'd rather live in a world in which Iran has these limits on enrichment capacity, limits on its centrifuges, this kind of, you know, soup to nuts inspections regime, and all that other stuff is still available. Like, I just, I, I've never understood this. Why, why? You... If, all, if all those things were true, I would sign up in a heartbeat. Jared, Jared, lightning right. round, lightning round. Okay, so Ben, we like to leave with a little bit of a lighthearted uh, round here where we ask a couple questions to learn a little bit more about folks. Um, so the first question I have is, do you have a favorite Yiddish word? Growing up in Manhattan, I'm assuming you do. Um, you can, We've had you, and you wouldn't be the first person to use profanity yeah, in Yiddish yeah, on yeah, this podcast, yeah, so yeah. You, you should feel free to do it. Um, you know, uh, uh, maybe not in direct relation to my co-host. I, I, so my favorite, my favorite, uh, I like the sound of the language, right? So even though it's like, it's not the meaning, but I just love the word schwitzing um, and find myself, I still say that about sweating because it's just, it's a better word than sweating. Um, I'm schwitzing. <laughs> or to go to the schwitz. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah right? exactly. You know. It's just a great word. Or I, I have a schwitz in my house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. what, what, what is your favorite Jewish food? Hey, that's a really good question. Um, but, but good oi right there. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, I have to say, and it's because my my grandmother made it particularly well is matzo ball soup. Okay, that's a, that's a solid answer. Very traditional, very traditional. Or, or or like a or like a Zabar's babka, but that's you know that's a different chocolate babka from Zabar's man. Oh, there you go. All right, I still order that delivered to my house and and and. Oh, that's know, awesome. Uh, um, they have these so, gift baskets. So, uh, other than after the fall. Uh, what should we be reading that you are reading right now? So there's a great book that I read. I, I read while I was writing this book because I was you know, doing deep reading on authoritarianism. It's not a fun. Uh, it's not a fun read. Um, but I read a book called Darkness Over Germany. Um, it was written 
during the 30s by a British woman who went and just traveled around and interviewed ordinary Germans, um, you know, teachers, uh, business people, people who were not really Nazis, but you know, were making decisions about whether to resist, whether to acquiesce. It's just a fascinating insight into how people rationalize um, complicity, you know, um, and passivity. Um, well, you know, if I quit my job, there'll be someone worse or, um, you know, the, the priests, you know, have to put pictures of Hitler over the altar, you know, think, well, if I r refuse to do that, then, you know, I can't preach to my flock. Um, teachers thinking like, if I don't, if I, if I re refuse to teach the Nazi propaganda, then who else will teach my kids, you know, and, and you just feel because, because it was written in the moment, it wasn't retrospective. It's just this amazing document of um, a society allowing itself to be consumed and, and a warning for all of us about, you know, um, you know, it, it, could it, could happen happen. it can happen anywhere, you know, and yeah. uh, so Definitely darkness again. over Germany. I think people would really it'll blow your mind. Um, a warning to both okay, sides. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, so yes. yes, absolutely. So one last one. Uh, if Wikipedia will, were to be believed, you once interned on the mayoral campaign of Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. I would tell you that uh, there's no shame in that because I once interned for Jesse Helms when I was in college. Um, so I think I have you beat. But if I said that, you know, if I said Rudy Giuliani, what's the first word that came would come to mind? Now? Uh, uh, yeah. Right now as we sit Nuts, here. You know? Um, <laughs> but, dude, I was, I was paid staff um, on that campaign. Oh, yeah, wow. I, I actually worked my way up from being an intern. And um, I was I – was, um, you know, I, I was kind of, uh, I don't want to say I was a conservative Republican, but I was kind of, you know, that was 97. Um, Giuliani was, you know, obviously not the figure he was today. I worked for an amazing woman named Sonny Mandel, who was his communications director. Oh, Sonny, yeah, sure. Who yeah. I, who legend. Was a total legend. She'd chain smoke cigarettes and curse out reporters and then laugh at the reporters and it was kind of this hard-edged education in politics and New York politics and union politics and ethnic politics. Um, but I was, I, I was, I was, I went to kind of a left-wing, you know, high school on the Upper West Side and I'm a bit of contrarian speak, you know, so I kind of zagged right a little bit because I didn't like, you know, to conform to, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of conventional, uh, surroundings I had, um, I write about this, so I'm just going to, you know, say something embarrassing here. I was already beginning to kind of my journey leftward um, around this time, in part because then I had gone to college in Texas. And so then I was rebelling against, you know, that um, dynamic. Right. Um, and and so I, I was kind of going through that, that, that move towards the left. But I, I was supposed to work at City Hall uh, in the Giuliani administration in the, the next summer, the summer of 98. And I got fired before I started that job because I had gotten a summons, and I'm just going to own this on the Jewish Insider podcast, you, you know, turn, turn it down if you have kids, um, for public urination. Um, let's just say I was out with friends, 
you know, uh, you guys are New Yorkers, like if you're a teenager, you know, you're like 19, 20, you're a meathead, you're an idiot, you do something stupid, you get that ticket. By the way, I'm also mindful that I was like a white guy, so I got a ticket. I mean, it could be worse, you know, um, but um, uh, and, and, and that was not in line with the law and order ethos of the Giuliani administration. <laughs> So one great what if of history is what if Ben Rhodes went to work in the Giuliani City Hall administration uh, and, right. and, you know, started, you know, some career in, in uh, you know, in that way. Um, uh, yeah, wow. I tell the story in my book. And so this, uh, this is, it leads nicely to plug my book um, about how, you know, and then by 2001, I was working in Democratic politics in New York. I was working for right. uh, a city council campaign of a woman named Diana Reyna who was mm-hmm. sure. uh, basically running for the Vito Lopez machine in Brooklyn, right? Um, so yep. Vito Lopez, who became the chairman of the Brooklyn Democratic Party and then had his own fall from grace because all these kind of sexual harassment allegations um, came out. Um, so this is a book that somehow has, and, and New Yorkers will appreciate this, a book about global nationalism and authoritarianism and how we got here also has the names Sonny Mandel, Vito Lopez, Rudy Giuliani and Diane Arena in it, <laughs> you know, like that's, <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's my life story right there. Ben Rhodes, author of After the Fall, former deputy national security advisor for President Barack Obama. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. You're welcome here anytime. Thanks, guys. Wow, Rich. You know, every time I think we can't uh, get to sort of a more weighty and potentially more uncomfortable space. We uh, we do it every week. That was a great conversation. I don't think there's been a fuller accounting and a fuller conversation about diverging worldviews as it relates to Israel, the United States, the Obama administration, the Middle East, probably ever. Uh, what do you think? Listen, he has become a polarizing figure uh, for many, uh, and I give him credit for coming on. Uh, and taking our questions. Uh, I think it was a thoughtful discussion. I think we highlighted some key stark differences in worldview. Uh, Would have loved uh, to uh, delve in uh, a little more into JCPOA, but there's only so much JCPOA you can do uh, in an hour. And uh, what, what I would say is a couple of takeaways. Number one, there is a clear tension on the left in progressive circles between the lack of inclusion, diversity, equity, treatment of minorities, LGBTQ, women, ethnic, religious minorities within societies like the Islamic Republic of Iran, Hamas, Gaza, Hezbollah, and the values that those progressives preach and the fact that they line up with them a little bit more on foreign policy. Uh, that's clearly a tension that I took away. Uh, and number two... On the JCPOA reentry fight, this issue of terrorism sanctions is also a clear problem for the Biden administration, and they're going to have to clarify to Congress whether or not the U.S. has a right to impose terrorism sanctions on the central bank, the Iranian oil company, and others, because it is justified, the evidentiary basis is there, uh, and we were told in 2015 we could do that. Yeah, no, listen, uh, I agree. I mean, we've been talking about at least the first question for quite a while. I think I like the way Ben put it when he talked about, or maybe I put it when we talked about the progressives wanting a, a end state to the conflict. And what do we do, as Ben put it, with the 7 million Palestinians who are, who are living in the West Bank and Gaza? 
um, what is their status and and I think that the longer that that re- remains unresolved, the harder and harder it's going to be for pro-Israel Democrats like myself. Um, I think I also like this uh, insight of of hearing about uh, Ben Rhodes as an APAC uh, ho- holding an APAC donor card. I don't think that that's ever been talked about before, but. Maybe he still gets the newsletter. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, we appreciate him coming on. Uh, Appreciate uh, the fact that he has a new book coming out and uh, appreciate him spending the time with us here on Jewish Insider. If you have any comments, questions, show ideas, and tips, send us an email at podcast at jewishinsider.com. Please come follow us on Twitter at J.I. Podcast if we're on the clubhouse. Hope you're hanging out with us. And remember to follow and subscribe to the Limited Liability Podcast on your podcast listening medium of choice. This is the Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.